Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Do I Still Love It, the podcast that writes very serious poetry about the struggles of teen romance in the back of its civics composition notebook. I'm Marshall James. And I'm Laura Weiss. And every week, we invite a guest over to watch a movie or TV show they remember loving when they were a child to see whether or not it still holds up now that they're an adult. And that uh, grown-up child we have with us today <laughs> is artist and art director Celery Jones. Hey, y'all. Hey. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it's really cool because we're both from Lexington, Kentucky, uh, but did not know each other until we both moved to Los Angeles. It was one of those, oh, small world. We'll all escape Kentucky one of these days. <laughs> yeah, a real small world considering how we met, which was by happenstance of, you know, yeah. I liked your dress. And it was yeah. like, oh, hey, guess what? We're from Lexington and we're both nerds and it's great. <laughs> and now we're all we're boss wrong. Uh, so tell, uh, tell the audience a little bit about uh, yourself. I am a little wacky. I'm a little weird, maybe a lot weird, but I'm not afraid of much. And I like to make art and do things that make people happy. Fun is kind of like my main bag. And that's what I try to try to bring like on set, you know, whenever I work on a production or whatever. So that's what I do with my artwork as well. And this is appropriate because I think that this movie we're about to do uh, formed that piece of me. It came in a really formative time of my life. So... I haven't seen it in a long time, but I have a feeling I'm still going to like it. Yeah, and so the movie you're referring to is 1990's Edward Scissorhands by Tim Burton, uh, which this will be our second Tim Burton film that we've revisited on the show. And uh, yeah, I mean, if there's anything that Tim Burton is known for other than like dark storylines is the the specific visual style that is now like a very Burton like you think, oh, that looks very Burton-like. Even if it now, even if it's not, if it's just people who've been inspired by Tim Burton, like if there's lots of black and white and stripes and right. curly cues on things and stuff. You know it, but yeah. And I was really excited when you said that you wanted to do a Tim Burton film because I think that it's so important to speak about you know Tim Burton as an artist because he really mm-hmm. is more if i was to if i was to give him one word if i only had one option i would consider him like a visual artist in his own way and um you guys check check out celery's stuff she's fantastic (laughs) um if i could have one person design my house it would probably be her um and so you know it's it's really i would love to hear um at some point uh how as a young child, this artist affected you, the way you view the world. Because I imagine seeing your work that they, that Tim Burton was pretty huge. Yeah. yeah, that was, I mean, honestly, it kind of started before. I don't know if you all remember, and this might be dating me because I think I'm a little older than you guys. But um, do you remember Amazing Stories? I think it was like a Steven Spielberg thing, but it yeah. was a, mm-hmm. a weekly show. And Tim Burton did one of those, and it was animated, and it was called The Family Dog. And my brother and I... Um, we had a taped copy of that from the television that we like wore the tape out because we loved it so much. And I went to his uh, retrospective at MoMA, like, I mean, it's been a minute now. It's probably like seven years ago or something, but he definitely uh, is an artist. I agree with you. I think that the um, cinematic things that have jumped from his page have almost been happenstance and I think he's an artist first. I agree with you completely. And yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember going to that MoMA exhibit, and uh, it was, or uh, they had it, they had it here at the LACMA oh, cool. in, in Los Angeles, and um, it's like it was amazing because they had all of these old like notebooks and stuff of his, mm-hmm. and he definitely has always kind of had this like, like cutesy, morbid, like. <laughs> 
kind of bipolar style. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there are certain like characters like Sally the Ragdoll from Nightmare Before Christmas, and indeed uh, we'll learn Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. uh, who were both created by him when he was just kind of like an outcast teen. Absolutely. And that's another thing. Like, I mean, from the time that I was born, I always felt different. And especially in central Kentucky, you stand out, Certainly, you know? Yeah. And so I think that this really spoke to me because um, this movie in particular, and it has been a long time since I've seen it, but I guess that's the point of the podcast. Um, but I just remember that it sort of shaped me emotionally to understand that it's okay to not be like everybody else and that there's love there for that. Oh, I'm so excited to revisit this with you. Yeah. Right. So why don't you give us in under 30 seconds what you remember the plot of the movie? Okay, well, first of all, I wish that Vincent Price was in it far more, because when I was little, that was my main bag. Um, (laughs) So, uh, definitely love that. But I just remember that he was kind of, I mean, he was lonely, but he was up in his house, and then all of a sudden, people drug him out, almost in a Frankenstein kind of way, sort of, uh, Frankenstein's monster, pardon me, Yeah. um, kind of coming back into society and trying to learn how to operate, but I don't think he ever had the capability to... To live in You society. mean Edward. You're yeah, Edward, Edward, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that there are a lot of jerks out there and people are afraid of what they don't understand. But yeah. Oh, also the cookies, the sugar cookies at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> That's a running dream I still have. Yeah. And so, Laura, I always like to ask, is there any parts of this movie that really stand out to you that when you look back on Edward Scissorhands? I was really young the last time I saw this movie. And so I, I remember one single snapshot and it's just the visual mm-hmm. of like a yard and it's nighttime and there's something, I think he's like trimming a hedge with his hands. <laughs> and that's all that really stuck with me was more the essence of the essence of the, the kind of the world that had been created of the, the average everyday people are just kind of living their lives. And then there's just this dude with scissor hands over in the corner and it, it seemed so natural for me as a young kid that that would just be oh yeah of course that's the thing um that only now as a you just asked me this right now i'm like oh i've always been like oh yeah edward scissor hands i totally live next door to him i yeah. i was very endeared by him but i don't really remember much about this movie and this is a movie i've always wanted to see as an adult because i have been told that there's a lot of depth to it that I obviously wouldn't pick up as a small kid. So I'm hoping that that's the direction we're going to go today. Right. And the, Marshall, you? Yeah, I'd say the the one thing that I, I know the first time I saw this movie, I would have been probably too young to even really understand what I was watching. Um, because I think I'm realizing for the longest time, whenever I'd see... Uh, shaped topiary bushes. <laughs> I just uh, I just thought that oh, people with scissor hands do that. Like um, like that there that awesome. there are lots of just scissor handed people who just that's what they do for a living. And and as a kid, I thought oh well, that would make a lot of sense if I had scissors for hands. Like topiary gardener. So is the in way to that go. world, if trees got chopped down, would they be with chainsaw hands? And if like people plunge toilets, would oh, they yeah, be with like, plunger hands? Oh yeah, I mean well, chainsaw hands obviously army of the dead. <laughs> Or army, uh, army, yeah, of army of darkness, yeah. army of darkness. So yeah, there's. Uh, we on. should create a plunger hands world. Yeah, yeah. I think that so, um, maybe yeah. the porn industry has taken care of that for us. Now. Yeah, uh, maybe, yeah. Uh, there's you're probably people right. with all sorts of hands now. But one thing I do want to add is that this is. I remember my mom dropped me off to go see this by myself, and it was like one of the first movies I saw by myself. And how old were you, maybe? Oh, when? probably like eleven. Okay, uh-huh. twelve maybe. And um, uh, I don't think I was quite a teenager. Maybe I was, but. Uh, I remember that I cried 
And that was the first movie that I was like so emotionally like, ah, like a live action movie anyway, you know, not sure. Bambi. <laughs> well, and I think it also it's significant if that's like the first movie you really saw by yourself, mm-hmm. where it was definitely the first time you saw it. I think that's the other thing when you're a kid is you watch a lot of movies and it's rare that I feel like I'm experiencing movie for the first time when I was a kid because mm-hmm. like so many movies, they're just the ones your parents make you watch or let you watch yeah. or make you watch. Uh, during that fog of time before the age of five where you're aware of stuff happening, but you're not really making memories yet. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? So, like, like, I can't remember a time where I didn't know the entire plot of Star Wars. Like, because I watched it so much before I actually became, like, a child who's walking around doing her own things. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that this, the first time you saw it, it was by yourself. And so there was no one there for you to feel self-conscious about being overwhelmed around. Mm-hmm. So pretty I dope. love that. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Well, won't you join us in having a beautiful private moment and join us while we watch uh, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Avon calling! This is some huge house, isn't it? Hello? Why are you hiding back there? You don't have to hide from me. I'm as harmless as cherry pump. Those are your hands. Those are your hands. I think you should just come home with me. Joyce, I just saw this strange guy driving with Peg. Did you get a good look at it? Hi! Scissors! Whoa! Look at handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> Kim, this is Edward who's gonna live with us. Well, this must be quite a change for you, right, Ed? Those things are cool. Can I bring him to show and tell on Monday? He's a highly imaginative character. It seems clear that his awareness of what we call reality is radically underdeveloped. Eddie, you take my very breath away. Do you have a girlfriend? (laughs) Is there some special lady in your life? Skewered kid. Just a scratch. The power of Satan is in him. I can feel it. All along, I felt in my gut there was something wrong with him. From Tim Burton comes the most incredible tale of a most unusual character. Edward Scissorhands. Hold me. and we're back uh so that was tim burton's uh, edward scissorhands and wow like there's a reason i feel that this is like tim burton's kind of like standout you know when you Swan think about song yeah yeah it, it's really his like signature sort of film in in all of the delightful um tim burton ways would you say Oh, yeah. I mean, I just really feel like it's so colorful and so dark. At one point, Laura, you said, man, this movie went dark really fast. And I was like, isn't it dark throughout the whole thing? Yeah, I just, you know, spoiler alert, didn't expect uh, Anthony Michael Hall to um, (laughs) die by being impaled and then fall out a window. 
Was it? And it was prepared for that. Yeah, it was almost ancillary. It was just like, oh, P.S. Whoops, you're dead. Spoiler for the end of the movie: there is murder. Edward is. I'm sorry, that was self-defense. That was not murder. Agree. And he deserved it. It was. It was Edward's house. You are allowed to kill home invaders. No, it was Edward's house, and he was being beaten by him with a tire iron. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I just think that. I forgot completely that Edward ever killed anybody. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, and then it was like, oh, that happened. Plus, Anthony Michael Hall. What? Okay, how long had it been since Weird Science? Like maybe four years. How did he grow up and beef out? I did not even realize that he was in this movie when I saw his name in the trailer. I was like, wait, what? And then to see that he was the boyfriend, which is a pretty major role. And it's like crazy. the role that embodies the concept of toxic masculinity in a way that I never would have expected to see Anthony Michael Hall do. Right. And he does it really, really well. He's channeling mm-hmm. Biff Tannen super hard. Yeah. And uh, and what's the older brother? From um, Bill Paxton's character in Weird Science. Exactly, yeah. Bill Paxton's character in Weird Silence. Um, uh, barf or whatever. They, yeah. they turn, uh, <laughs> the big frog, yeah. The thing I think is really cool about Edward Scissorhands is that it's definitely a modern, like, suburban fairy tale. And I think one thing that we kept commenting on the whole time we were watching it was how surreal the juxtaposition of the inventor's mansion Mm -hmm. and Edward Scissorhands as like a Clive Barker horror character, like with all the straps and the scissors for hands, is juxtaposed among this like very pastel. Yeah, the whole mid-century thing on the outside, but then you have, um, but I wonder if that's not uh, based on having, I kind of feel like, and I don't know a lot about the back, you know, production of this, but having Vincent Price involved, it's almost like House on Haunted Hill. Some of his original stuff, you know, is fully represented in that. But then you get the whole thing of um, Tim Burton's, you know, makes a caricature of every single robotic element in the movie. And every single thing is anthropomorphized. And I think that definitely played into my own life. Yeah. (laughs) And I do appreciate what you said about it being like a modern fairy tale, because I think that all of the houses uh, are being, you know, the mid-century on the outside and the inside almost impeccably uh but god there's so many notes to touch there like uh the way that um Winona Ryder's character Mm -hmm. she uh was wore either yellow or blue the whole time which is very hopeful it's very happy very thoughtful her hair color was all faded but that's another story um (laughs) it is very weird to see her with like light straw blonde hair right and but str- it was very interesting also to point out that she had the exact same hair color as Anthony Michael Hall. And I, to the point where I think it came out of the box on both of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the same box. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Feria number 74. They're just yeah. like, oh, we're just going to have to, you know, cut costs on this production. So we're just going to do both of your heads with this one $7 box of... Uh, but that's just Die. really, that says something about color and how it played into the whole production design. Like when all of the cars moved out at once, mm-hmm. the first thing that I noticed is that each car was a tertiary color to the house. So uh, say there's an orange house, it's a purple car. It's a green house, it's a red car, Vi- vice versa. You know, yeah, or, yeah. or not vice versa, but you know what I'm saying. Pink. And the fact that the uh, the religious lady wore, was the only one to wear red and black and navy, the really dark colors. And I found that to be interesting because what is that a surface cover for? What's story does that tell um and, and plus the drab uh uh the drab home decor the few times we see inside her house like her house is almost as like dank and dreary mm-hmm. as the inventor's castle mm-hmm. is whereas everybody else has this very minimalist um 
uh, sparse but brightly lit open mm-hmm. rooms everywhere. But is that uh, speaking of uh, foreboding, you know, like a sense of she knows what's going to happen before anyone else does. And she's attempting to warn them multiple times and they just write her off because she's the local crazy lady. Like, I don't know. But maybe she actually has something interesting to say, but they're just not willing to listen because she's boring. Yeah. It's interesting because this was Vincent Price's last major film role. And uh, and it was one of these things where, like, Tim Burton came up with the idea uh, along with the screenwriter, uh, Caroline Thompson. And when they conceived the idea of the inventor as this sort of, like... Uh, like you mentioned, it is a Frankenstein, uh, Dr. Frankenstein character, but instead of uh, uh, setting out with the idea, like, I will create life, he instead makes all these machines that are life-like, that have mm-hmm. these anthropomorphized features. And Edward, we learn midway through the movie, like, the origin of Edward is he is one of the several robots mm-hmm. that the inventor has this plan to slowly turn into a person, or at least, you know, a... a an automaton of a person. That's right. I made a note about that, actually, talking about how um, Vincent Price's character, father, as Mm -hmm. it were, uh, um, he was up in his solitude, but he created a family for himself of robots. But then when he held the cookie up to the robot and thought, it would be nice to give one of these a heart. Um, Well, frankly, it led to some other questions like, why does Edward need to eat? Because he's been up there by himself for (laughs) a real long time. Right. And, And actually, so there's a point in the movie... Where, um, Pe- what is the girl's name? Peg. 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 The, um, the, the mom? N- no, no, no. The daughter. The daughter was Karen? Karen. Oh, yeah. my God. I don't know. Okay. Forget. Yeah. So there's a point. Um, there's a point uh, when Karen comes home and finds uh, Edward in her room. She doesn't know what it is. And she freaks out. And the dad is like, oh, Edward, don't worry about it. Teenage girls are crazy. Let's go drink some whiskey. How about those glands? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> a weird statement. But the reason I bring it up is because when Edward put the whiskey in his body, for some reason, the, the way he reacted to me felt like a body that shouldn't be ingesting anything. Mm-hmm. And it, so I... Like violently reacting to ingesting this poison. Exactly. Like, for me, it kind of felt like um, Tin Man, oil can, oil can, Oh, you my know? gosh. You've just brought up two points I wanted to mention. A is that I believe, you know, he was reading the, the book about manners. Vincent Price was reading to mm-hmm. Johnny Depp's character. Which I'll also note that in this film particularly, Johnny Depp transcends his own personality. I feel like he truly becomes Edward Scissorhands, uh-huh. whereas there are other roles that I've seen him play that just make me think like, well, it's Johnny Depp. Do you know what I'm saying? So well, that's one. And a quick, a fascinating thing about it is uh, when when Johnny Depp took this role, he spent a lot of time studying Charlie Chaplin mm-hmm. because Chaplin, without being able to communicate, had to communicate and, and evoke your sympathy in a lot of his films. So he studied a lot of the ways that Charlie Chaplin would face act and hand act so, that draws oh. you to you know yeah draws you to sympathize and like him even with you know he has maybe a paragraph of lines in the entire movie. Is this before or after Benny and June? Yeah. That to me stri- sounds straight up like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. Benny and June was like yeah. But uh, second point uh, that being a robot, he was perhaps created to for. Um, you know, etiquette's sake, to eat a meal if he was given the opportunity. Right. But in what situation would he find himself that he would need to have alcohol? 
So perhaps it messed with his inner workings. Do you know? Oh, right. Like he would have a machine gut that could uh, digest cakes and a, mm-hmm. you know, a brisket, but not handle... <laughs> Right. Like actual alcohol. Hard scotch. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it kind of leans more to like his innocence too, because even if he could digest alcohol, the first time I think anybody has hard liquor, it's just like, oh, what God, why would and anybody also, drink hard liquor? And he also took it straight through a straw. <laughs> yeah. He just sucked on that straw. And I can guarantee you that's not pleasant. No. Yeah. Absolutely not. Okay, so guys, what year is this movie supposed to be taking place? I think I finally figured it out. Please lay it out. Okay, so we need to get into the plot a little bit so that we can explain Pegs. And she really opens the film and kind of creates the world for you and as your eyes and ears as you walk through it. Um, But it's very, very confusing in the beginning because she's walking around in this little Jackie Onassis outfit exactly (laughs) out of 1963. She is walking up to houses with women in the 80s inside, but the houses look like they're from 1950. She gets into, like, a Chevy Impala from, like, 1975. And I'm just like, where and when are we? But I truly think that if you actually look at the other women, we are in the mid-80s. It is just such a detached world that I don't think everything has caught up necessarily with the world outside. I agree with you there. I think that... um Honestly, the whole production design, coming back to, uh, you know, Marshall's point about it being a modern fairy tale is that anyone can really relate to it because it doesn't have one visual perspective. If you have only, like, say, Stranger Things, where it's like hardcore, we know exactly when this is happening, you know, like this, it's kind of questioning, you know, we're constantly asking, like, wait, when is this happening? So that becomes ancillary. It doesn't matter. You know, like the story is what's important. And I think that they did a really good job of that because it's very confusing, but in an interesting way that pushes the story forward. Absolutely. Right. And it's kind of interesting, like... So our our main character, like, I like to think that this is really more of a a movie about Peg. and, And Edward Scissorhands is just like... A, a character that allows you to really kind of learn what sort of person Peg is. And so she... Play- At least in the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so she's going around being an Avon lady. Um, but to your point also about the kind of a mishmash of all these different time periods at the end of a cul-de-sac is a <laughs> like a like medieval you know <laughs> uh like castle mansion like all decrepit and run down like a horror show in this otherwise bright shiny pastel mid-century neighborhood so what problem do you find with that just the fact that it exists well yeah it, that and that it's so funny because it's it's sort of like, I mean, I, I grew up in the suburbs and we definitely had some houses that everyone's like, you know, oh, it's a creepy house. But the creepy thing about the house is that like, we never saw anybody go in or come out of the house. Not that it was an actual haunted mansion <laughs> on a hillside, you know. Well, and you know, that's weird until you give it the veneer of being a modern fairy tale and then it yeah. like totally fits in. Totally. Honestly, I think, but I know I keep coming back to the burbs when we have random conversations, but I think that that's why it works because you were uh, discussing at one point um, having the homeowners association would have would not have it. You know, oh, right. I'm like, yeah, this, this well, eyesore. why do you think that this neighborhood and what's perceivably Burbank would have a homeowners association? <laughs> and also, why is there a hill? Like, that doesn't exist, you know? It's just, it's all, I think that you have to step outside, you have to suspend your disbelief and just accept it. And that's how the story moves on. And also the fact that she never went back. 
she never went to go find him again. And even in her young age, like as an older lady, she tells her what I assume is her granddaughter um, that she wants him to remember her as a young person. Well, okay, so say a year or two passes, she still could have been a young person and gone to see him. (laughs) And that's why I remember now exactly the point that I cried in the first, when I was, you know, when I first went to see her when I was 11 or whatever, um, I remembered it was when he, he couldn't give her a hug so she hugged him. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, this explains so much about my young, ill-fated relationships. Like, <laughs> like yeah. this is, I have no, to save this you. broken man. Yeah, exactly. I have to be his rock. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. He does everything wrong. I'll just do everything right. And then it'll <laughs> balance worthy. out correctly. You're worthy. <laughs> because he's got a heart of gold. He doesn't know he hurts people. <laughs> yeah. Even though you have knives for fingers. Oh, right. It's, yeah, the, so the whole movie is like told with the framing device that an old, uh, that an old Karen um, is telling her like granddaughter why it snows in Burbank. Oh, P.S. Why is your bedroom Victorian thirty years in the future? Dude, like, that bedroom looks like it went back in time fifty years prior to the movie minimum. Yeah. <laughs> Yet it went back it went forward in time like that woman's at least eighty five years. It's into old. the future when no that like weird pin tuck shirt and into like into the future like seventy years. Yeah. Yeah. He has Winona grandma's Ryder. Hansel or Gretel Ooh. from Hansel and Gretel. Right. I mean we still are like forty five years away from that reality. I mean maybe maybe mm. we will go full revolution and by that time nuclear winter will have happened, nuclear winter will have gone away and we've had to just build all of our stuff stuff again you know who knows yeah maybe edward scissorhands is part of a race of automata walking <laughs> on the earth long after we've destroyed ourselves this is hey who has yeah. a, a he is a robot with a heart of gold yeah it truly is yeah right and i think this is another part i had completely forgotten that edward scissorhands was a robot there's a heartbreaking moment where he shows edward the hands that he has procured or crafted for him. And he's like, it's an early Christmas present, Edward, but I've gotten you these lovely hands. And then there's this beautiful close-up of um, of Vincent Price's, like, amazing, like, like dignified, old, wrinkled face. Mm-hmm. And he suddenly starts going slack as he's, like, having a stroke or whatever that's, going to, that's killing him. And I remember thinking... Man, what a beautiful, expressive face. Like, I'm, my heart is breaking watching it go slack, like, knowing he's dying. I kind of saw that as the gift. That was the ultimate gift. It's like he's given his life to create Edwards. And it was, um, it was, it's the greatest irony. You know, like, the deepest, the deepest thoughts, the, the death of the only one that you've ever known, at the same time holding this gift, which is the only thing you've ever wanted, and you'll never have it. It's just, it's, <sighs> I honestly, at the end of the day, I really feel like this was a tragedy. Oh, in no. A way 100%. that I did not realize when I was no. young. 100%. <laughs> like, I was, by the, by the end, I was curled up little girl style with my blanket directly under my eyes, knowing that there were things I didn't want to watch and that I needed to cover. But it wasn't from a horror perspective. Right. It was from, it was from the fact that this this character that was so good, that was so pure, so innocent, that just so happened to have a body construction that might have caused harm, mm-hmm. um, was was losing everything um, and just compl- couldn't help himself. The and problem. every every single rung that he fell down in that quick descent, I just wanted to hide more because it was so it was so tragic. 
Mm-hmm. And I just, I, it was so, this was a very sad movie in my I opinion. I can understand why you said, uh, oh, this went dark fast. You yeah. Know? Like, because at first I was like, well, I mean, like, I mean, like, there's a difference like, between yeah. like, oh, maybe like it's a little jokey dark. Like, there's a difference between dark and tragic. I should have said this yeah. got tragic fast. Like, this movie, um, I didn't expect it to go so painfully into the into the black. I'm not shocked that I cried when I did. Like I realized <laughs> the moment that I cried when I was I had that like flashback of being yeah. young in the theater by myself with my empty popcorn, being like this. The part where I cried is when he. Well, I already said this. He tried to hug her. She hugged him back. But the reality was that they were going to have to face the public eventually. And this is something that I experienced in my own life is that, you know, like you can be the best friend to anybody that they've ever needed. But eventually you have to operate in the real world. And that's what I feel like the story is about. It's like, can you or can you not operate in this real world? Right. And I think that so that brings us to an interesting like so going more into the plot. So. So Peg, who's our who's our mom and the Avon lady, she finds Edward alone in this castle. His his creator has died, and he, she just decides you're going to come live with us. Mm-hmm. In and- one of the most incredible acts of naivete I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> but it comes from such a sweet place. Yeah. And and. Uh, Look, and- naivete is almost always sweet. Yeah. Almost always. <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing is. She brings Edward home, and we were all struck by the fact that very quickly, uh, Edward's um, unique construction of his whole body is kind of quickly, like, just sort of accepted by the whole family and soon by the whole neighborhood. And it was interesting because ultimately, this whole story is one about otherism. Um, And we have, uh, no matter what, Edward Scissorhands, while like the people around him is not one of them. And there's this interesting part in the beginning where curiosity, um, and as I think you mentioned several times, boredom, it seems like these people, all these neighbors are like bored and overly nosy. And that causes (laughs) them to initially seem very like interested and sort of fake nice. Well, not even just that. Take it a step deeper. This is a world that is so isolated from reality and so insular that A, nothing interesting has happened in this community and God knows how long. And B, nothing interesting has happened in the minds of these people in Mm -hmm. God knows how long. So suddenly someone comes in and they are off the beaten path. They have something to bring that none of them have ever thought of before. And what I found very interesting was that did not inspire any of them to think outside the box themselves or be creative themselves. That just inspired them to be like, oh, hey, you, you did the, do the weird things. You that cut the hair, you that cut the bush. Why don't you do your cool stuff to me and my house so I look cool and interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the, whole, the, whole, the whole space didn't necessarily accept him as basically p- picked and choose the things that they could, t- like, take. Yeah. Is that not... It? But honestly, though, is that not... A uh, mirror to our immediate culture. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean it's just like, there's a reason. Me, there's a trickle. The whole trickle down factor. Like when the when there's something original, people are just like, oh. Uh, but then they're like, well, maybe I want 
want that. And then they're like, give it, give it, give it, give it, give it. And that's the trickle down from an original idea to Walmart. And then you take it the next step, which is the cult. I mean, this is just cultural appropriation 101, Ooh. this film. Then you take it the next step where the second that his interesting thing suddenly can potentially make him, make his difference negative, they're just like, he was shitty the whole time. Every idea mm. he has is terrible. We're still wearing his hair. We still have his uh, his stuff in our lawn, but it's ours now. It's ours. It's not his. And he sucks. And we should like, and then just everything crashed and he became a pariah. I can see that. And so I remember that he was talking about, and I mean, if you guys saw that, that show, uh, the the mama show, um, that he was completely enthralled by his surroundings growing up. He was completely like, he could step back out of his situation where he was living and see how crazy it was that everyone wanted to be the same. There's so much sameness. And yet we're slightly different because my house is pink, yet yours is blue. And there's this whole thing of like, oh no, we have, of course we have our own ideas. And, uh, but really it is all the same and it's trying to fit into a certain tribe. So were they bringing Edward into their tribe? Or were they just trying to maybe get creative with their own tribe and only use his bits and then push him out when they were done with him? There is definitely something really interesting because, like you're saying, like this this is a movie that like very much rebels against the status quo. Because here we see like this dreadful status quo neighborhood, and we kind of get from the very beginning that Edward's a good dude. Like we're, you never worry that he this that he's secretly no, a he's bad clearly guy. a sweetheart. Yeah, but we I we mean, know he's from not even the, just a sweetheart. But he doesn't he even is, know any better. He is just like a, just pure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this part um, where it's a scene with he and Vincent Price. And there's the sketchbook that Vincent Price kept to do the evolution of Edward. You know, he's going to start with a robot and then eventually ends up with a man. But he never made that. There were like two sheets that flipped beyond his actual stage. Right. So the man that he was attempting to create was, would fit into the world without much question. Right? Yeah. So if he took it a couple of steps back and made it less that, like, what does that say? Yeah. And the thing I think is really interesting is... This whole sort of idea about, like, you know, Edward isn't complete and yet, uh, like, is is trying his uh, his best and obviously has a creative spark. Like, he's he does all these, uh, you know, topiaries and the hairstyles. Like, he's got a creative spark in him. And there's actually a moment when, uh, when he has gotten framed for breaking into the Anthony Michael Hall's dad's house mm-hmm. where this lawyer, like, or... Uh, police officer psychologist says something along the lines of oh he has a highly developed imagination but his sense of reality is deperate is deeply separated from the rest of our own (laughs) where's peg in that though (laughs) yes and i thought when i heard it i was like that sounds like that could have been something that like a teenage like a therapist for teenagers said about tim burton you know like oh you have a highly developed uh uh, imagination but you're very detached from the rest of reality that we all live in <laughs> i completely relate with that oh man they're and then the dad like let's go on to bill if so, we're talking yeah, about Penn. alan arkin the great alan arkin plays bill uh in this and he seems so staged to be a, a villain when we first see him like because peg brings home this boy without asking 
uh, you know, like the family, how with they scissors think about for it. hands. With scissors for hands. I love that. I love that she's just like, oh, come to my house. I won't run this past any member of my family. <laughs> Why don't you just sleep in my daughter's waterbed while she's out of town? You have scissors. That's not a big deal. Y'all, it's I'm just not fantastic. Kidding. Like, I it's really fantastic. relate with Peg. And there are so many things that make me think, like, okay, I get it now. Like, there, there's some choices I've made in my I life. I shouldn't have done that. Like, she's yeah. just so nice that she gets herself into trouble all the time. Uh, yeah, like, like, and Peg's just relentlessly, just so relentlessly cheery and always relentlessly on the bright side. The very sunny disposition mom that, like, you can't help but be like, mom. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's get into, like, so what What do you think was important to the, the age when you saw this movie um, like now that you've had like a refresher of of some of the scenes, like what it, what were the things that definitely left a mark on you, both on your maybe your personality, but also on your creative side? Well, honestly, I think the whole thing hit home because my parents are so polar. My dad is like a combination of Steve Martin and Andy Griffith, and my mom is like Edward Gorey uh, meets Angelica Houston. You know, and they. I want they to meet your. If, fully... if the first person that you say your mother is like is Edward Gorey, I'm like, I want to meet hey, this lady. When Edward I was, when I was little, let me tell you, I had some interesting child books. That's so amazing. It was a real. It's funny because they are so polar. And I think that this movie is a really good example of that. Like all of this bright and, you know, campy, like, hey, we're all, let's have a barbecue and eat this ambrosia salad. It's mostly cool with, you know, <laughs> yeah. but also yeah. you're probably going to die and life is, you know, and that, that we've, we've had this interesting balance. And I think that's why there's a lot of humor in my family. Uh-huh. But like, I feel like having seen it now, this is... It was a really good representation, and I think that's why I I related to it so much, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, my first childhood crush was freaking Crispin Glover and, like, Back to the Future. What a weirdo. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was never into the boy bands. I was never into that stuff. All my friends were, but I just didn't, you know, I wanted to be there, but I wasn't. And this gave me an outlet for, like, oh, right, this is what makes sense. You know, it's just like... This guy, maybe we could have some good conversations. You're a robot with a human heart, and I'm a human, maybe with a robot heart. <laughs> but all I'm saying is, like, the difference was uh, really clear to me watching it tonight. And I, I just thought it was interesting. Um, all of the things that I did not subscribe to, all of the things that, you know, wanting to be like the Joneses, wanting to be, ironically, Celery Jones, um, but yeah. wanting to to have all the stuff and wanting to do what everybody else was doing, I had this strange thing that I couldn't even counter. Like, I didn't understand why I wanted to not do that. To this day, like, it takes me a minute to read books that people tell me I should read. So, oh, uh, yeah, you want to, like, rebel against. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, well, way. Yeah. I'll get to it eventually, and I do, and I usually enjoy it. You I, know? Fi- I find the same thing with Laura. If I try and recommend something to Laura because I've heard other people like it, I can't tell Laura. <laughs> if that. enough people recommend to me anything, yeah. I will just dislike it. It's yeah. just how it is, <laughs> and I hate that because, yeah. like, I am generally a positive person to the point that I call myself a Pollyanna on a regular basis. You know, I'm just like, hey, life's good. Very Peggy. Like, yeah. So Peg, I absolutely relate with her. So yeah, I, the interesting thing for me is uh, like rewatching this movie is I'm kind of impressed by the fact that this is a movie about 
and an, like an it's an outsider boy who doesn't understand why the girl is with like the asshole, right? Which is a pretty common trope in movies. But I, I felt like, and, and maybe it's a speaking to either the acting or the the writing. But I didn't feel like we as the audience were led to feel like, oh, Karen should be with Edward. I, I felt like we were led to believe Karen should not be with uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Right. And we were also led to like sympathize and think that Edward was a good guy. But I think I, I really appreciated that there didn't... It's funny, this movie is like l- listed somewhat as like a romantic fantasy. Mm-hmm. But I really don't feel it was a romantic movie at all. I felt like it was a, a movie about... Um, you know, a a boy and a girl who come to like really understand one another. But like when she when she hugs him, like in the in the end, it's a really touching moment. And then when she kisses him, there is a there is a lack of passion that doesn't cheapen the kiss. It just makes the kiss not about I'm attracted to you. Right. It's like I, I care you. about you. Yeah. Yeah. You're worthy. You, you're worthy. You matter to me. Right. And like, despite the, the cuts and scars on your face and like your your body, like I want to let you know that you are cared for. Yeah, it's I kind was, of a Beauty and the Beast situation. Except yeah, very for, much yeah. so, yeah. I was surprised about that because I assumed that uh, in my young age, you know, wanting to be in a relationship and like, oh, what's love like? You know, like I thought that the reason that I cried the first time through uh, was probably to do with that. But it wasn't because clearly this kiss was very, you know, like having seen it now, um, this this kiss was almost platonic. Like it was just like, a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where it was just like a quick brush on the lips. It was not. It was just like, oh, you're good. Good luck. You're worthy. Exactly what you've said. It was a very well delivered kiss too. Like the Winona Ryder put just a like she it's it's her kissing him, mm-hmm. and she puts just enough in the kiss to be like this kiss matters, but it, it's me. Uh, it, it, this isn't like we're about to make out as the credits right. roll, uh, and so it made like a scene in a a surreal scene in a pretty surreal movie like have some real emotional resonance that I thought was like really great and definitely carried us all the way through to the deeper conversation I think because I mean it could have easily ended on that it could have easily like had just like oh I love you and as soon as the look in his eyes when she said I love you it was just like it it almost like she stuck an arrow in his heart you know like like oh someone loves me and like he understood the weight of that but it wasn't romantic it was just love yeah all right guys I'm gonna be a little uh contrarian right now oh um, I had an issue with the fact that I never saw the arc, the, the middle part of the arc between her being despising him and her fully getting to where she did. Oh. There was a, like, when he starts doing the snow and she starts dancing, that was the moment where I was like, there's a scene missing here for me. Like, I needed a moment where, where they connected mm-hmm. in a more maybe domestic way or just like we see eye to eye in this moment and not just an I feel sorry for him and he's a genius sort of way. 
Um, and so I was really kind of frustrated with their interactions because I felt like a scene had been cut. How about when they, uh, when he was on that local television program and she was just like, oh my gosh, just waiting for him to say it, waiting for him to say it. Why was that a thing? Because they yeah, really hadn't established had that there was like a love no interaction. Connection. No. And that and, bothered me. And yeah. if anything, yeah, Anthony Michael Hall was teasing her about it, but we just thought, well, he's just being an asshole. In the and same way that my granddad boy. used to tease me about neighbor boys. Right. Like, know? oh, this yeah. neighbor boy is yeah. now a stranger now living with you right. or whatever. But not it, yeah, I, I'm with you, Laura. There did there did seem like there was some scene, a save the cat moment of some sort where she realizes that like despite how weird he may be, that like he's a genuine like good dude worthy of like care, care yeah i feel like there's a gap mm-hmm. and i guess maybe we were supposed to get that from that carving scene but you're you're and right was, there's not yeah. enough there's not enough meat to that scene before he accidentally cuts her mm-hmm. and we go to the rising action yeah and it's with... a beautiful scene and i'm willing to forgive this because the scenes in in and of themselves are very honestly acted and they're beautiful and I think they get it across but if I can be critical about anything the building of the relationship between the two of them because it does start from such a place like she's triggered he's triggered they're both totally freaked out by each other um there's no normalizing of their of their interactions it just goes from that to she feels sorry for him to suddenly she I don't know. Has great. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to the. I know I haven't mentioned this yet, but I feel like I should. The magic of snow and Tim Burton. Okay, <laughs> so the the whole movie starts and it's just like this falling snow. And the first thing I thought and said aloud was, "Snow is so magical." It's like, <laughs> like how I feel. But he uses that as a thing. So, and yeah. do you think that he was attempting to use the ice carving as a let's just gloss it over? Let's just like, oh, look how incredible this moment is that we're clearly Maybe. in Southern California, you know, but it's I'm snowing. Like, like, I'm like suddenly wondering, where did Tim Burton grow up? Like, did he, he grow up in California? He grew up in with the absence of snow. He grew up romanticizing <laughs> yeah, winter yeah. in a way that it didn't exist And for yet him. we grew up with snow, and I still think it's magical. <laughs> Some well, people hate it. You know, and I think there's something yeah. about, like, you know, for anybody who's been outside when there's snowfall going on, like one of the pr- profound things I think about snow is the dampening of sound, uh, and also the fact that snow, as it falls, starts making everything look very uniform. And so there's something very calm, um, but I think kind of lonely about snowfall. Like I feel like it invokes this sort of isolation, isolated feeling. Um, because also, you know, I mean, you get snowed in if the snow is too much. Like there's something about snow where. Uh, unless it's a blizzard, snow is this sort of like peaceful event as it's happening. But as it happens, it slowly smooths everything out to look uniform. It quiets everything Clean. down. Yeah. So there's something both dreadful about snow and calming about snow at the same time, which makes sense when you think about Tim Burton, where so much of his visual style is at once dreadful and cute and calming. A dreadful calm. By Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah. uh, one one thing I one last thing I want to talk about is Alan Arkin. Um, there's a scene in the movie right after Edward has been framed for breaking into a house, and Alan Arkin says to uh, is trying to teach Edward about the difference between right and wrong, and saying that because he was a created man, he doesn't have mor- morality, and. 
uh, they give this example of if you found a bunch of money, what would you do with it? And uh, Edward says, I would give it to my my loved ones. And and Alan Arkin's like, wrong, you're supposed to give it to the police. And Winona Ryder says, no, that's the nice thing. The nice thing is to give it to people who need it. And he goes, this isn't about nice, this is about right and wrong. Which I thought, like, that's a big, that's a big, like, defining line about this normal keeping up with the Joneses world is this idea that niceness isn't as important as what is right and what is wrong. I have something to say about that, too, though, because Bill made a note of when his son was about to spray Edward off with the hose and he was just like, no, 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 we don't want him, you know, cracking up, like rusting up on us, like go get the oil. I felt like that was a selfish thing. It wasn't for 100%. Edward's sake. Oh, it was, it was like, no, no, I want him to keep making families out of my bushes. Right. Like, it's like, don't wash my shears, son. You're going to rust Hedges, if you're from the UK. Hedges. Hedges. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, this brings us around to our title question. Do I still love it? Celery Jones. 100%. <laughs> I still really enjoyed it, but for very different reasons. And it was as a tragedy, not a romance. Oh, okay. So what? It, briefly, what's the difference between why you loved it then? Like, why did you say you love it then? Um, back then, I think that it established my love of weird boys. <laughs> and, um, and just like that it's okay to be different. And now just recognizing like people's places in their lives. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the suburbs don't have a whole lot going on, but they're going to put all of their eggs in one basket, and whether or not that basket carries on to the farm is a separate question. I don't know. It just asks more questions for me now, and I appreciate it on two different levels. Laura? Okay, so here's the thing. I deeply, I, I was deeply affected by this movie. It didn't necessarily deeply affect me in, like, positive, quote, unquote, I love it ways. Um, so I feel weird saying I love it because I was quite like disturbed by a lot that happened in this film in a beautiful, in a beautiful way, like amazing filmmaking. Um, so from a, from a very black and white standpoint, super thumbs up, but I don't think I can say I loved it because I feel like it made me feel weird inside. It was a gray love. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, the interesting thing is I, I will say that I I do still love it, and I think I like it more now than when I than when I was a kid. I think it creeped me out a little bit too much. It took me a while, as a as a young person, to become a, a comfortable with uh, this sort of like like cutesy macabre style, which now I find really intriguing. Like going back and re experiencing things like the Adams family, I find is really interesting. Finding this juxtaposition, the greatest love story ever told. Exactly, so true. Like ju- Someone can just love me the way that Gomez loves Morticia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> completely. I thought it was really interesting to watch young Johnny Depp really demonstrating why he was about to become a superstar. Yeah. Like he he gets, like I said, he gets maybe a paragraph of lines and manages to make this very sympathetic and, you know, like layered, interesting character that's he, he could have so he could have made it cheap really easily. There are so many subtleties. It's kind of incredible. And, and kudos to uh, Tim Burton. I feel like 
all of all of the actors on are are totally on and in it and i think it it speaks cuz this is a this is truly like an ensemble movie in that almost all of the neighbor ladies uh have a have a semi significant scene or scenes and so to make this whole ensemble like build this sort of stepford wives neighborhood but that's there's something kind of off about low it rent. yeah low rent stepford wives in the 80s uh and then be able to juxtapose it with uh, the world of Vincent Price and and Johnny Depp in this movie is just really like fun and interesting to watch. So I I like it even more than when I was a kid. I think. Yeah. Um, I think that at the end of the day, the production design. I really was not aware of the fact that it had informed me as a professional now. But looking back on this, there are so many things that I use now. So many little tropes, so many little, like how perfect all of the homes were in their element. Like these are clearly homes from the late 50s, early 60s. And every single thing is significant. How open the uh, living room is of the main family. How like the the gingham, the yellow gingham and the, the emotional emotions that that feeds into it that has very clearly affected me in my professional life in a way that I wasn't aware of. Uh, there are so many things. You that, find you like do yeah. a lot of these kind of throwback. Uh, Absolutely. Well, well, but to perfection. Yeah. You know, my my sense of perfectionism clearly is on par. Well, it's, it's really interesting how the set becomes almost a prop in this like this like and that's sort of a, a, a Tim Burton thing like through line is uh, let's make this set so specific, so precise right. that it becomes rather a prop that everyone is walking around inside of. Well, right. and I can tell it can, I mean, I, I think that that, that theme was set from the beginning when they fly over it and you know, it's not, it's not a hidden fact that you're looking in the, those first sweeps those first camera sweeps at a model. I right. believe that that is probably why I went into animation. Uh, that is definitely why I went into animation. I recognized how much love is involved and immediately knew it wasn't for me. <laughs> as soon as I graduated, I was just like, okay, now what? Because this is clearly not my thing. But it is 100% respect that I have for this person making these things. It's incredible. And thank God for him. This is really great. This is... I did not know we were going to see such a like an like an artistically interesting, like and really satisfying movie. So thank you so much for suggesting it. Uh, I had fun. <laughs> so, uh, Celery, where can people find you on the internet? Should they like to see some of your work or any of your upcoming projects? You can find me at CeleryJones.com, but also I do a lot of stuff for HGTV and DIY Network. Uh, please register for the Smart Home on HGTV.com. You can win it. It's the jam. It has my art in it. It's in Arizona. Also, the Urban Oasis will be in the southeastern United States, but I can't exactly say where yet. You should also register for that house which will also have my art in it. Uh, and the design is by Brian Patrick Flynn, and it is the best. Uh, if you just want a painting of anything, it could be the Loch Ness Monster. It could be your grandma. <laughs> I'm super good at those things. She your, is super be, good at those things. It could be also, your grandma as a Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, with a fancy bathing suit and a bathing cap. Um, I've done art on Atlanta, on the FX Network, and um, The Walking Dead many times. All of those things. You've probably seen my art. So there you go. It's great. 
Well, if you'd like to find uh, us, we're at Do I Still Love It all over the interwebs. And please, uh, if you like the show, go to the Google Play Store or iTunes and rate us and review us and recommend us to a friend. Why don't you? Uh, And also, if you have any suggestions of movies or TV shows that you're just dying for us to uh, review with a friend, please send it to us at Do I Still Love It at gmail.com or on our uh, social media. And that's it for Do I Still Still Love It? Uh, I'm Marshall James. And I'm Laura Weiss. Good night. Chopping noises. Chopping noises. Chopping noises.